0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's Easter weekend, so this week we have a previously aired show for you. Next week, the Orange County Museum of Art opens Marilyn Minter, Pretty Dirty, a retrospective that originated at the Contemporary Arts Museum Houston. I saw it there, it was fantastic. The show opens in Newport Beach on April 2nd and will remain on view through July 10th. It was curated by Bill Arning and Alyssa Author. Marilyn Minter, after the break. a Baroque masterpiece has joined the Getty collection. Orazio Gentileschi's Danai depicts the moment Zeus descends as a shower of gold to impregnate the cloistered princess, who then gave birth to Perseus. Painted around 1621, it was part of a commission of three paintings depicting different scenes of women experiencing divine encounters drawn from Hebrew, Christian, and Greek theologies. Danai can now be seen with another member of the triad, Lot and his daughters, only at the Getty. For more information, visit getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Sculpted in Steel, a luxurious display of innovative, machine-inspired Art Deco style. Featuring 14 cars and three motorcycles, along with vintage images and videos from this iconic period, now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash sculpted in steel for more. On view now at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City a Japanese constellation, Toyo Ito, Sanaa, and beyond. See how, inspired by the Pritzker Prize winners Toyo Ito and Sanaa, and refreshingly each other, a new generation of Japanese architects and designers have created socially conscious, endlessly inventive, and dynamic works. Get more information and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. And we're back. Marilyn Minter, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'd like to start with the earliest paintings in the show instead of with your more recent stuff, which is more famous. The earliest paintings in the show date to the mid-70s. Let's start with a 1976 painting that juxtaposes a piece of plywood against a linoleum floor and a 1977 painting that shows the spill of a brown liquid on the same linoleum floor. And these strike me as two paintings that, right off the bat, establish your interest in surface and, and ways of representing surface on, at that point, canvas. Why were you interested in surface?
1: You know, it's so interesting. Everyone asks why I do everything, and I guess that's your job. But my experience has been, I just have this urge to to do it, and I figure it out later why I did it. And I, you know, especially when I, I mean, when I saw all the body of work from the 70s up until the present in houston at the install it hit me there's the same threads through everything and 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 what's you know it's really specific is everything is pink and green from the very earliest work these floors were all these kind of green linoleum floors or green gray it's always this kind of not bright pinks and greens and at the time i was in retrospective, there's also a photograph of a piece of plywood, on, a painting of a piece of plywood on the linoleum floor.
0: Photos on the floor from 1976.
1: Right. You notice that one of them is a photo of a piece of plywood. So there's this, and then there's also a ceramic piece in the show that I made. I made these black and white clay photographs in 19, I'd say probably 1979.
0: That's right. Clay Polaroid, 1979. It's glazed stoneware. And it's
1: also a piece of plywood on the floor. So I I thought of myself as a conceptually based photorealism. Now, when I went around to try and get a gallery to show me in New York City at the time, they said, well, yeah, you're a photorealist, but you're so boring. You know, I didn't have any shiny balls, you know, to show off my technical masturbation. That I was technically a masturbator if I needed to be one. <laughs> I mean, I could always copy any.
0: Well, they're they're fascinating paintings for for lots of reasons, and there there are a couple of artists who kind of were maybe playing on the same field, and who I'm wondering if you were paying attention to at the time. One of them is Sylvia Plymack Mangold.
1: It's so stunning. Every I always thought she worked on with wooden floors. That's and I, that's why I went to linoleum, and then she said. Yeah, I had no idea she was doing linoleum. I knew her doing measurements with rulers when I was in grad school. I thought they were brilliant. And, uh, I, I, and then she opened linoleum floors, too, and everyone thought I copied her. But I was blind to her. I was like a kid. You know, I, I didn't even know. I just moved to New York in 76. I didn't even, you know, I wasn't paying any attention to anything. Uh, around me and I it, it really felt terrible because I uh, I was just you know it was that moment where you're you know you're pretty or an artist is like just concentrating on their own vision but she was as close to being we were very tangentially working on the same thing but too bad we never met or you know got to t- talk to one another because we had a lot in common I thought she was a lot better and smarter than I was too with our rulers and measurements and then she stopped doing it all together.
0: Another artist who came to mind immediately, uh, we were talking about photos on the floor from 1976 a moment ago, is Michael Snow, who is also playing with questions of representation and reality and duplication.
1: The filmmaker.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and photographer. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Oh, you know, I, I just barely know the name. I do that. I thought he was a filmmaker. He did, oh God.
0: He was. He did, I mean, absolutely.
1: Yeah, there was a thing on static. Yeah, what was the name of that? It was a famous movie.
0: Yeah, Michael Snow, the single, the single shot wavelength piece. It, and 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 then the, kind of the third artist, and this is probably much more tangential, is your your sink study of 1978 plays with surface and texture in a really interesting way. It it there's a block of frozen peas, there's a drain, and there's an egg and that has been broken open. And the yolk is on the surface of the sink, and the shell is kind of surrounding the yolk. There is a lot going on in that painting.
1: I was interested in at that point I did another one that the the peas are out of focus, and everything and the only thing I did it' like I was doing these pairings where. I thought of focus and, non, and non-focus, almost like I was the camera. It's sort of like what I'm working on today, where the peas and the inside of the sink is out of focus and only the rim is in focus. And uh, But they didn't
0: make the show because we couldn't find it. <laughs> you know, as I was looking at the painting, I, I was thinking to myself, oh, that's, that's a familiar thing. And eventually I remembered that Ed Ruscha has painted peas. And he's kind of playing with realism and surface, but in a totally different way.
1: I was thinking, you know, honestly, what what I think of is it was I did a lot of Richter studies with focus and non-focus, not knowing he existed. But I was in my 20s and, I, you know, I read art magazines, but Richter wasn't in any art magazines in the 70s. So it was, you know, the collective unconscious. I was really thinking all the time about focus and non-focus.
0: There's one detail in that painting that I'd like to spotlight, and it's on the lower right where one of the eggs, sh- so, so, so you have kind of framed the the painted image with kind of a black outline, kind of like a black pencil style outline, and everything is within, you know, everything in the sink is within that outline, and one thing comes just outside of that outline on the far lower right of the canvas, the shadow of the eggshell.
1: Oh, you're like, you're like a detail person like me. These are kind of I noticed nobody else pays any attention to that was basically just a way to model and going out you know like if I was trying if I was going to cut it there which I never did I always this is the you know I really wanted these to be I was actually thinking constantly about showing it as an illusion so I wanted the 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 the, uh, test colors on the side for the peas and the so I wanted to just extend that illusion. It wasn't uh it was an unconscious way to just go outside that the rectangle. To mm-hmm. make it to make you know that it's I'm creating an illusion. I, I also did at the same time see I had a at the time in the, in the 70s and this is a terrible thing but I don't I don't I don't have anything but slides of these images because I was getting no attention. I just sort of oh I must not be very good. I had no confidence. So I just sort of let these things disappear. But I actually used to paint black and white photos and I would actually just enlarge them like instead of there were eight by 10 photos in those days. I printed them in my dark room and then I'd make a painting of a black and white photo of one of these really boring things like peas in the sink or a pencil on a table. But I'd, ma- I'd, I'd leave it in a raw canvas frame like this. You understand what I'm saying?
0: I do. I do. And, and and listeners will too if they look, go to manpodcast.com and look at the image of this painting. It's, yeah, it's they pretty do have
1: them, and I just would stick them on the wall right next to the sinks. So it was just, you know, I thought they were really smart, but nobody else did.
0: <laughs> well, I think glazed stone, the, the glazed stoneware piece, clay polaroid, that we were talking about a moment ago is really smart. And I wonder why that is something you tried and did.
1: Well, I was really playful and curious. I always have been. Like, I'm super curious on esoteric things. And I was at this place called Oxbow on a residency. And I didn't have, and I was there for just a month. So I, I needed too much I needed too much of a setup so what I so I the only you know to make any art at all I thought I'll just make I'll just work with clay because I didn't want to I didn't want to transport all my paints and you know for just one month it took me too long to make a painting Mm -hmm. so I just took uh, a piece of paper and I and I dipped it in slip and since I was painting actual paintings of black and white photos I thought I'll just make a black and white photo And at the time, no one had ever seen it before. And I made a whole bunch of them. But, you know, like I said, nobody paid any attention to me. So they just broke over the years. This is the only one I had left. I just glazed the photo surface, the photo surface of a piece of plywood on a a linoleum
0: floor. So that piece is is dated to 1979. And there's a seven-year gap in the exhibition between that 1979 piece and 1986's Big Girls.
1: Ah, I was in rehab. (laughs) That'll tell you everything.
0: (laughs) So you made nothing or you just made nothing you liked? A
1: lot of work, but it's just so terrible. Uh, uh, I did did do a body of work that's very good in in 1983 to 85 with a a German artist, Christoph Kohlhofer, and it was a collaboration. And it's sort of a blank area. That's interesting you notice. Most people don't even notice. But I will talk about that. Uh, There was this moment in time where – In the 80s and early, early late 70s, where there was this huge, the art world at that point. I don't know how old you are, but there were when I'm I'm old enough to know there were art movements that lasted five years. Sometimes there were two of them. Sometimes there were minimalism or and or concept, and then there was the beginning of conceptualism, and then there was this giant movement that hit New York called neo-expressionism. And a lot of the neo-expressionism artists were German artists. And of course then the American version was Julian Schnabel. And so there there was really this privilege of I'd say I'd say the, the gestural mark. And, and since I was I, I always had this gift to be able to copy anything, I could Create that illusion, but I saw how phony it looked. It just, I knew, and, and, and even in my, you know, what I collect, I'm a big collector, I love art. I, I, that's all I ever want to buy. I'm only interested in art I can't, I, I don't do. You know, I love gestural painting. I love Cy Twombly and Mary Hallman. And, uh, you know, I, I could create that illusion, but I it never looked legitimate. And so I did this, like a lot of young artists, I wanted to fit into, I was ambitious but no confidence and I really wanted to fit into the a dialogue and I was getting shut out. Everyone said, Oh, loosen up, loosen up. And cause I, I'm, I'm naturally a very, you know, what's the word I'm a builder, you know, I build paintings and uh, I'm, I'm very analytical and I, I'm very labor intensive and I take a really long time and the gestural mark does not come natural to me. And I didn't trust uh, the fact that what I did very well just seemed like too easy. I didn't trust exploring and expanding that. I thought I had to challenge myself. So I made terrible, terrible gestural paintings, and my and they were just dreadful. And that's why you don't know, never see any of those. And then I got together with this German artist, and we worked in the Lower East Side, East Village, and that was a you know that's a yeah, that's a punk scene in the 70s and early 80s. And I did what everybody else was doing, and I did it a little more basically. I got clean and sober in 1985 and then I, I started thinking on my own and taking much more risks and that's when I went back to being able to trust that I have a gift for copying and making that part of my, my art. Now the, in the interim between me doing those terrible gestural paintings, I was in that collaboration team with a German artist we showed at Gracie Mansion and we made some pretty good paintings. And he was doing the gestural mark and I was painting realism and we were topping we were we were making image sandwiches. They look really good to me now, but he's still he's in Germany and I don't know how to get old. I mean we we, we split ways a long, long time ago.
0: One of them's in the catalog, too. There's
1: Um, one, of course, yeah.
0: Strange Fruits from 1986. (laughs)
1: Looks pretty good, huh?
0: Yeah, it does. It really does. And there are some hints there, maybe even, about where you were going to go.
1: Yeah, someday I'm going to show
0: them. At about this time coming out of the mid-'80s, you also move from painting on canvas to painting on panel.
1: That's because I saw Gerhard Richter's paintings at Barbara Gladstone, the, the early work of the paint swatches, and they were all cracked. And he was using enamel paint, and I saw, uh-oh, this is my future, because they were like 20 years old then. So I thought, I better go to enamel uh, uh, on metal, because that will not crack. It's not brittle, and it's easy to
0: move. Ah, so it was more you were thinking about Archival. the future lives of the objects rather than a certain surface. Yes, exactly. You know, if we go back into kind of nutty art history, I, I or the nerdy art history, I love you know 17th century paintings on copper. I love those surfaces. Did you have to learn how to adjust to a very different to a metallic surface after having worked on canvas?
1: Oh uh, well, when I did the canvas, I used to paint layers and layers of enamel,
0: so and sand between,
1: so I created the exact same surface on metal.
0: So you were already prepared for it? Yeah,
1: it wasn't it wasn't that much of a and and and, and I've also had to adjust every time. There was a moment in time when when I had enough money to actually fabricate the panels, and everybody, we different fabricators use different auto body paint to spray the surface, and that was the real, that was the biggest adjustment. And then we, now we're doing everything in house. We do everything in house except print the photos. We build all the panels. We build the sets for the videos. You know, I have a, I have a really tight
0: crew here of six, nine people, I think. Not
1: anymore, six. Not anymore. Now down to six. Yeah, heartbreaking. They're getting too successful. I have, you know, they're making more. Money to their heart.
0: <laughs> you mentioned that you paint in enamel. You have for, you know, since at least the late '80s, frequently included hands and fingers in your paintings, and we see lots of nail polish in your paintings. Is there a relationship between the enamel we see on fingernails and 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 the stuff you make your paintings out of? Well,
1: it, 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 the only relationship is the same name. They're very, very different paint. And the way I use it— But there's a reference there. Yeah, they're called—
0: There, are, there could be.
1: Are you, are you talking about the food corn specifically?
0: Well, starting there, yeah.
1: I always want to point this out to people. I don't know if you noticed, but there's half of these—not half, but one, two, three, four of these hands are men hands. Man hands.
0: I did notice that, and in one of them, for example, is is holding corn on the cob in a suggestive way.
1: Yeah, yeah. That, I'm glad you.
0: I mean, you can't miss. You can't. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think
1: it's people there. just. Um, you do notice details. You're, you're right. You're like the same kind of uh, wavelength. And so I, you know, because I was going in into uh, cookbooks to get the images, and they were mostly man, men's hands, frankly. And so I just changed them into female hands all the to- half the time, but. That's, uh, nobody ever notices that, and I guess when I was trying to create, at this point I was still touching on illusionistic gestural painting, but I was faking it. I was doing the underpainting, but I was letting it be as messy as possible. I wasn't cleaning it up because enamel just automatically drips, and I like the way it, where I would run a color, and it, and, and I love just like putting it in and watching it fall apart. And then I'd let that dry, and then my assistants and myself would turn the projector on and put the dot screen in. And so it was this fake mechanization, too, because it looked like the surfaces were screened, but they were all hand-painted dots. So it was really this kind of fake expressionism and fake mechanization. And that's how – and I made them all just to make a TV commercial.
0: Yeah, the, the the TV commercial is you know ran on late night television in I think 1990.
1: Yeah, 1990. Uh, yeah, we we filmed it in '89 and we and I made the paintings in '89 and I paid everybody with these paintings because I had no money. How much do you think it cost to rent 30 seconds on David Letterman? The,
0: I don't know, but I do know that it was less than an ad in art form at the time.
1: It was $1,800, <laughs> and nobody knew because you're only buying sections of the country. Yeah, I only bought the tri-state area. And uh, it's like nobody even knew this. I couldn't believe it.
0: Have you been tempted to do that since then?
1: Oh, yeah, but the difference is the internet. Why bother, you know? But I did make this video that's also in the retrospective. I did make Green Pink Caviar, a one-minute version. I made it specifically to go. I thought I could talk movie theaters into putting it in between their movie trailers. And nobody... And I was only going to go to art theaters like The Sunshine or Angelica or uh, FI, you know, uh, IFC.
0: Everyone turned me down except for The Sunshine. Green Pink Caviar is a 2009 video we'll get to in a minute. It's um, in Moments Collection. My guest is Marilyn Minter. We'll be right back after a break. The Pulitzer Arts Foundation presents... CODA Digital Excavations in African Art, open now through March 19th. This exhibition features a powerful installation of nearly 50 CODA reliquary guardian figures produced in Central Africa between the 17th and 20th centuries to protect the bones of deceased ancestors. The exhibition expands upon a database and series of algorithms created to detect similarities among the sculptures, enhancing the understanding of their origins and functions. Visitors are invited to explore the hidden histories of these sculptures through an immersive digital experience created by rampant interactive St. Louis-based software designers and the Pulitzer's first game developers and residents. For more details on the CODA project, visit pulitzerarts.org. Often referred to as America's jewel box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. And now back to my conversation with Marilyn Minter. Well, I'm glad you brought up the, the bit about enamel and, and dripping and, and kind of how you made those paintings, because...
1: Well, I not do expressionism in the real way, so I had to fake it. I mean, I could, but it looks so phony.
0: Yeah, I, to, I mean, that's interesting. Cause, so take a piece like Chiaroscuro from, from 1991, which is enamel on metal. It, it, it's dripping. It's kind of granular.
1: I painted it with a projector on, and then I went over it with uh, dots. To try and, you know, it's dripping. And then I I just literally tried to hold it into place with with an image of masturbation, which nobody was ever doing.
0: (laughs) I'm curious about how you got from embracing and encouraging that kind of granularity in 1991. where you get 15 or 20 years later where the images are much slicker much smoother much uh, higher polish i I don't don't mean that as a metaphor i mean like actually higher polish
1: i learned i I actually was you know i I got really versatile in enamel so instead of painting enamel like uh, expressionistically like i am in uh in uh chiaroscuro i and, and, and the food porn and pretty much all of the as we call them the porn paintings. I learned how to work with enamel and translucent layers. And as soon as I got, I learned about the depth that I could get with putting thin, thin, thin layers on top of one another in the paintings. I was
0: hooked. So technical proficiency opened doors.
1: Yes, it turned, it changed. Yeah, it looked so much better to me than. Oil or mm. acrylic, because I had always worked in oil or acrylic, and uh, I was really good at it. But I never ever got the kind of surface because I'm so interested in surfaces, as you see, and details and things that most people ignore. That I couldn't get, I never could get that in oil. It was like, whoa! I thought I was died and went to heaven.
0: You know, these these paintings from the late '80s and early '90s are are really kind of beautiful, visually seductive paintings. And when we think of that period in New York now, we think of a place that where where, where artists were, you know, suspicious of beauty, if not downright hostile to the idea. of. So were you conscious of that at the time? Were you conscious of that kind of anti-beautyism or is that only the kind of thing we notice later?
1: In fact, you know, like I'm pretty curious. So I, I know what's going on all the time, but I sort of didn't care you know it doesn't like i could like i i there a certain, this is one of the reasons that bill and Alyssa are doing the show is because they want to give me a uh, they want to foreground my work in conceptual thinking because they don't think they think that's missing in academia and i know that it is and i know there's always going to be suspicion suspicious of anything that, that's too seductive but i you know i like the idea of of uh making paradox in, in all in, in everything I do I want there to be men, multiple layers and and to have anything that might be disturbing I can create such a, a I, I want to create such a beautiful soup that you can uh, actually be able to see uh, another layer because it's it's I, I make it look so good or I try to anyway like I could paint bit strands, you know, and but if I paint it so beautifully that it's not going to be make you want to gag.
0: Well, that's something that you've become the kind of starting in the mid 2000s that caught on immediately. I'm thinking of a painting like Strutt from 2004 or at SF MoMA, it, it, and it's a painting of a woman's heel in a Christian Dior high heeled shoe with some kind of blingy rhinestones on the top of the heel. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com, of course. And so there had always been, or there had for a long time been a lot of texture in. in... I started. I I learned how
1: to um, model. I let go of the dot screen because you see chiaroscuro, and then all. And I guess at about 1997, 98, the drips were gone. And I just started the the technique that you 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 think you associate my work with now, and that is the layering of enamel. With it, probably I was doing it for a while, but I got I started getting attention in in 203.
0: So so with the with the drips of the enamel in in the in the mid 90s, there's kind of a certain grit to the surface and technique of making those paintings. And in in the early aughts, we get. We get a high degree of finish in the paintings, and the grit you know is on the he- on the woman's heel there, there's a lot of dirt on her heel was that a conscious migration or is that
1: it was you know the idea. well I was very conscious because i I was already working with dirty feet with a great manicure a pedicure excuse me.
0: In photographs, as early as the early 2000s.
1: Yeah, yeah, dirty feet, which is everyone has. You know, you live, you work in the garden. You know,
0: you I mean, Caravaggio has. Yes. Yeah,
1: people's feet get dirty, and I just it's like never, you know, ever see it. You know, you never, ever, ever see it, and uh, I, I, you know, except everybody knows it. There's nobody taking images of it, and then uh, it, it all, it all comes down to this constant paradox when you look at glamorous images. It's another layer that there's this, you know, gives you enormous pleasure. Uh, but there's also all this shame about, oh, my God, why am I looking at this shallow, debased imagery? And then there's another layer where, oh, wow, I'll never look that good, you know. And I shoot these people, and I happen to know they don't even look that good. You know, there's just a brief second you can uh, create that illusion of it. There's a part of me that always rebelled at, at, at advertising imagery, but at the same time, knowing I got so much pleasure out of it, I wanted to show what it feels like. So I wanted all those layers and all the images. I, you know, it's really about how it feels. It's so, and you know, we, you know, the fashion industry is so easy to criticize you know why would i do that and people criticize i mean people you know i have i've been criticized because i don't take pot shots at the uh, at the glamour industry because it, why should i women deserve to have images of pleasure you know and and they should deserve to be able to make them too no matter who it fits
0: but you could have so, so to take strut you could have you know her foot could be clean but you enjoyed the dirt and the grit, both on her foot and on the bottom of the of the shoe.
1: Well, I understand that maybe a foot could get dirty. And I noticed through advertising that they would place grains of sand on, on a foot to sort of show, oh, look, a little dirt here and a little dirt there. So I really uh, just took a trope that already existed in the fashion industry and I just pushed it all the way. Whereas, you know, jewels in the mouth, they, there's a whole history Of artists, photographers, specifically commercial photographers, kissing the diamonds, you know, or, and I just shoved jewelry into my model's mouth until she gagged and just took pictures and made paintings, or or even an egg. There's all these images of of models uh, kissing eggs, and I just had her bite into it and letting it run down her cheek and.
0: Well, you mentioned kind of things not typically shown in, in fashion photographs and in photographs that are meant to be fashionable. And that brings me to freckles.
1: Uh, they're always wiped out. I feel like I'm responsible for putting freckles back into the imagery. Yeah, so first, tell me why you love freckles. Because I'm covered in them. <laughs> and I hated them all my life. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I was never – I. you know, every single female that lives – at my age group has got such body dysmorphia i'm sure and 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 then when you talk about young girls it's doubled and tripled i mean the way at least when i was growing up i looked at human bodies you know now the models are just not even i mean that you want to give everybody you want to take them and feed them and that is the de rigueur you know it's and they're they're the, i always say you can't the i always quote Crocteau, I think he said that you must forgive fashion everything because she dies so young. I love this female grotesquerie that's coming out right now. These artists like Petra Collins and Sandy Kim. I know this is a punk reaction, or at least I think it is, to to having to look at these flawless, poreless, ribcage-less, thigh gap images that are constantly perpetuated through the industry right now. So I, I love that these young girls are just saying, "Oh, fuck you."
0: Well, the the painting that's in the show that's probably the best example of this is Blue Poles. Oh you from... yeah, yeah, the pimple. <laughs> well, the pimple and the freckles and kind of the imperfection or the you know the the non.
1: But I put glitter on her eyes so she looks so pretty.
0: <laughs> yes. So there's kind of an intersection of things here that that I, I'd like to ask about. First, the title of the painting.
1: Well. Jackson
0: Pollock. So, absolutely intentional. So, did the title come before the color on her eyes? No,
1: I usually figure out the title right when I'm finishing.
0: You know, we'll have an image of this on the website. But so, the the, the freckles and her nose and and, and the area just below her eyes that, that, that is covered with freckles takes up kind of this triangle on the lower third of the painting you have big blue glittery eyeshadow on the left and the right, and you have eyebrows with a pimple and kind of real eyebrows, not kind of fake photoshopped eyebrows at the top of the painting. And then in the middle, very middle of the painting is the closest the painting's skin, the, the, the model's skin comes to being what you would see in, in Vogue.
1: Yeah. Well you know, this is a really interesting model too. I've used her all the time. She's she's actually if you saw her, and she was one of my students, and she's the armpit, also, the she's in the, all so many of my images. She's like two generations of black and white. Her grand, both sides of her family, black and white grandparents and parents, or, or mixed race. And so this young girl, I guess she's in her 30s now. I guess she's, uh, I've, I've, I've known her since she was 18 she is has got pretty white skin, but she's covered in freckles and she's got stereotypical african uh, american lips and uh hair and mm-hmm. she's just gorgeous <laughs> I'm just madly in love with the way she looks i always
0: was did when you made do you remember if when you made this painting you thought of those zones of the painting as kind of i don't know different stages on which to do those different things freckles glitter
1: yeah all of the above yeah i was just i was just always thinking uh but i i i thought that i've sort of been taking out the narrative lately i started i guess with the bubbles and seeing things through blowing bubbles or blowing bubble gum up and then there were freckles and bubbles and then from there it went to green pink caviar the video and and I've been working under glass ever since so I'm really making another layer between my viewer and the image creating an illusion of another image between us
0: you know you mentioned green pink caviar so so let's go there next this is just an extraordinarily colorful piece and I thought it might be a good way to talk about color how how did you determine I mean, there's green, there's pink, there's kind of a, an, an icy blue. How did you think through what colors should should be there in what in the various versions of, of how that of, of what this piece became? This
1: is a, this is a, one of those serendipitous events that happens to me every time I, I I shoot commercially. I I don't really shoot anything unless I think I can piggyback art on top. So I don't really do a lot of work, and nobody hires me anyway. I mean, it's like oh, the fashion world likes my, me a lot, but God forbid they they hire me because I'm way, way, way too messy for them, and untie-
0: You have you have worked for them though, you Tom Ford. Yeah, so that
1: people. was my only big job, <laughs> and actually he couldn't even he wouldn't even use half the images because he's, his his sensibility is so different than mine. He was lovely to work for, and a lovely man, but. It, I I, uh, I don't think, I think, you know, he kept trying to clean everything up and I basically at one point said, well, why did you hire me? <laughs> but he was so lovely and he, he didn't use half the imagery and I still got paid. So I was very happy. So if I can do a piggyback, I'm going to do it. And what happened is I was doing literally a job for Mac and the cosmetics firm. Cosmetics I was shooting an eye, their glitter makeup, and I had two models. And whenever I was and whenever I asked for the model, they didn't know this until after, until after they saw the green Pink caviar, which blew up everywhere. They were very unhappy. But then they uh, James Gager, who had a Mac, he's he he embraced it eventually. And what uh, what I was doing is every time I, I hired the models because of how long their tongues were. And and whenever I, they changed the eye makeup, I said, could you come over here and lick off this candy off this glass? <laughs> and we shot video <laughs> underneath.
0: So you got candy colors because it was the color in the candy.
1: No, I actually, this is all cake decoration mixed with vodka. I said, OK. And so I had two models. And when one was getting made up, I, I had the. And the other one come over and and we just started mixing. We were just playing. We didn't know what was going to happen, and I, and it was the Mac videographer who did it with me, and I you know he and I planned it. And he said no, they don't care, and uh, they didn't care until they saw it. And then I think they did a 180 though, because he's a lovely man, James Gager, and now uh, they embraced it. it. It ended up going everywhere, and uh, it was just like playing. We were just playing.
0: So. I, you know it's not one of your paintings but but green pink caviar has this super saturated color super intense color really kind of non-painterly color that's in c print like black orchid from from 2012 the color of her lips which is black ish with some yellow mixed in is evocative of, of, of colors you must like because you use over and over again how what what do you use to get to the colors you use.
1: Well, that's enamel paint. See how special it is.
0: You think it's just in the paint? You don't think it's the, it's decisions you're making about?
1: I'm sure that's part of it, but enamel is just so lush. You know, uh, it's fine painters' paint, and I don't, I, I, you know, I know you can create it with oil, but it's it's such it, they're they're not sophisticated colors. so much. We use it. We use them almost like digital. You know. It's, I'd uh, say you know.
0: So in blue poles, in the blue glitter of her eyeshadow, you know, it's not one blue, it's a lot of different blues. I mean, it looks like a lot of decisions are getting yeah, made. Always,
1: there. always, always, yeah. Because of the layering, you know, we can, like you can see, you can all go all the way back to, to the skin color. I don't know. I mean, I, you can create that illusion with oil, but it's literal in the, uh, enamel, it's almost like sculpture.
0: So it goes back to technical competence that the color and the depth of the color and the range of the color comes right out of what you can do technically.
1: Yes, exactly. And it takes a long time to make these paintings. You know, it's and the, the, the reason that I have a, a crew is because I could only make one a year. <laughs> when I was alone, it was just me and what I was alone for years, and then it was me and uh, my not my main assistant for I don't know ten years, and then. Then we had to do oh, five giant paintings for Reagan projects. And so that's when I went way up and, and kids and had to teach everybody. It takes three years to learn how to work with enamel. Literally three years. I've had people a, a little faster, but not much.
0: Well, you, you in addition to making paintings and, and video, as we talked about with, with Green Pink Caviar a moment ago, you also make C prints. And I'm interested in how you determine what, ends up as a painting and what ends up as as a c-print and so maybe to have that conversation i want to bring up two pieces one is a c-print wangeshi gold four from 2009 and a painting that is almost certainly based on about the same five minutes of, of of photographic shooting drizzle wangeshi mutu 2010 wangeshi's uh past guest on the man podcast why why did one of these images end up as a C-print and the other end up as a painting or vice versa?
1: For a traditional artist, I don't, you know, I, I don't draw. I take photos. And so the photos for me are like drawings. And, I you know, they look, you know, and you talk to any artist who draws. It's like sometimes the idea is best in the drawing, right? And so for me, the photos, I don't, this is film, number one. The one guy, I was still working just with film. And I didn't crop it. It's not touched, basically. I don't manipulate it. Whereas the drizzle painting, oh my God, that's a tongue from one negative. That's a necklace from another negative. The feathers are from another negative. That's a a, a Frankenstein image, which we call mm-hmm. references. So all of the paintings, anything you see that's painted, is a construct. It never existed as a photo.
0: Ah, so do you do you assemble things in Photoshop as as a way of drawing, or is it when you're in front of a panel?
1: Uh, in oh Photoshop for I spent a week making this image, Photoshop everything that drip was really just I created that drip all the way In drizzle I created it in Photoshop going all the way down to the end of the page. There's nothing like that in any of the photos. <laughs> so all all of the paintings are are you know, one, one, there are some of them that are 80 80 layers of Photoshop.
0: Do you save those files? How what do you what yeah, do you do absolutely, with the... absolutely, absolutely?
1: Uh, they're on my computer.
0: So museums and archival institutions are used to acquiring artists' papers and having them be on paper. Do you think about what will happen to those files on the computer? What what you want to have happen? That
1: would to them? be lovely yeah but at this point, I'm not at that level. <laughs> I don't think as interested, but uh yeah, that would be lovely. I definitely keep it. I'd even keep all the references because the very last thing I don't even look at the references i I just cut it all up and uh and then we just take them down and then I just keep working until i it's exactly what I want it doesn't nothing leaves here unless I'm in love with it.
0: But so you save all those big computer files. They're, they're as important as drawings would be to somebody who makes drawings on paper.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really a more of a digital artist than almost anybody, even though I have 30 years, 40 years, really, of painting history, maybe longer, 50 years, maybe. Yeah, I started working with oil paint when I
0: was about 16. Well, Marilyn Minter, thanks so much for talking with me, and congratulations on the show. It was a
1: pleasure talking to you.
0: That's all for this week's show